1: Greetings and welcome to the twenty seventh edition podcast of Women's Liberation Radio News for this Thursday, July fifth, two thousand eighteen. The band L Seven brought us into today's edition with their song Wargasm. My name is Jenna. I'm a female centric lesbian trying to do something constructive with her rage before an also strikes. I've produced this podcast for the past twenty editions, and I thank you very much for tuning into Women's Independent Media. Big up the female. <laughs> Today's show highlights and analyzes organized male violence in our society in the forms of war and militarized conflict. We are talking about this topic just a day after the United States celebrated its perpetual patriotic cycle of exploding fireworks in the air for the 4th of July. These colorful bright and loud lights in the night sky symbolize the bombs exploding during the Revolutionary War of the 1770s and 80s. As Cindy Sheehan states later on in her interview, especially since 9-11, the 4th of July teaches American children to honor, accept, and glorify war. WLRN chooses to explode these notions of war and expose the worldwide web of male dominance and violence that perpetuates war. In our first interview segment, hear Professor Cynthia Enloe talk about ideas of masculinity and femininity and how they support organized male violence. Cynthia wrote Bananas, Beaches, and Bases, a seminal feminist text that looks at the causes and history of war from international perspectives. Next, enjoy our second interview segment with Cindy Sheehan, longtime anti-war activist in the US who is a primary organizer for the Women's March on the Pentagon happening in Washington DC this fall 2018. Stay tuned for detailed information about that planned anti-war action ahead in Thistle's interview with Ms. Sheehan. And to round out our program on Women in War, Sekhmet Shiawal offers her profound commentary that brings us that much closer to an understanding of how things are arranged so that we can dismantle them. The team at WLRN produces a monthly radio broadcast to break the sound barrier women are blocked by under the status quo rule of men. This blocking of women's discourse we see in all sectors of society, be they conservative or liberal, mainstream, progressive or radical. The thread that runs through all of American politics, except for separatist feminism, is male dominance and entitlement in all spheres. Before we blast into this special and important edition, here are today's woman-related international news headlines, presented by Maya.
2: June was gay pride month, and lesbians took to the streets in droves this year with messages of lesbian pride. On June 23rd at the Dyke March in San Francisco, 12 lesbians were surrounded by chanting and shouting trans activists. They were harassed for more than an hour by an angry mob that ripped and destroyed their signs. One woman was knocked down three times. Another woman had her heels stepped on repeatedly until she was tripped to the asphalt so violently that her purse and glasses were knocked off and the handle of her walking stick broken. The lesbian marchers continued on peacefully, carrying signs that stated, quote, You can't silence us with violence, resist lesbian erasure, unquote, change our society, not your body, unquote, lesbian, not queer, unquote, and dangers of puberty blockers, transitioning children is abuse, unquote. The National Center for Lesbian Rights, the entity that organized the march, demonstrated a stunning degree of anti-lesbian bias by publishing a Facebook post three days later, falsely claiming that the lesbian marchers had, quote, chanted transphobic slogans and violently harassed and threatened other marchers, unquote. This slanderous claim is patently false. Nothing on the signs of the lesbian marchers demonstrated fear or hatred of those who self-identify as transgender. Instead, they expressed love and fierce defensiveness for women and girls. On WLRN's WordPress site, you will find an article summarizing the event in San Francisco along with coverage of other lesbians in the streets. On the 22nd of June, five anti-trafficking activists in Jharkhand, India were abducted and gang raped by six men. The women were part of a local theatre troupe performing a play about trafficking in a church in the Kochang village. In a premeditated attack, six men attacked them and abducted them to a nearby forest along with four of their male colleagues in order to teach the women a lesson for going against the diktat of the village self-government. The men were beaten up while the women were gang-raped. The rape was filmed and the women were then forced to drink urine. None of the witnesses, including the priest at the church where the abduction took place, reported it to the police in an attempt to hush up the affair. It has also been reported that the priest intervened and asked the rapists to spare the nuns from his church. Only two arrests have been made. A recent investigation by The Guardian revealed that incarcerated women in the US are being groomed and forced into prostitution in large numbers by sex traffickers. The traffickers find all the necessary information about the women from government websites or from corrupt bondsmen. The traffickers pay for a woman's bail, again through cash bonds or corrupt bondsmen. Then once out of prison, she is forced into prostitution with the threat of returning to jail if her bail is rescinded. A large number of women in US prisons get arrested for non-violent crimes or drug-related charges. Many of the women arrested for violent crimes are often victims of incest or battery. In fact. Victims of domestic violence have a higher conviction rate and longer sentences than all others charged with homicide. What this reveals is a systematic push for vulnerable women to be forced into the sex industry. After sustained feminist resistance and international outcry, Nora Hussein had a death sentence commuted to five years of imprisonment. Hussein, a 19-year-old woman, had been forced into marriage at 16. Her husband, with assistance from his family, had raped her in the presence of witnesses. When he attempted to rape her again, she stabbed him in self-defense. Marital rape not being a crime under the law, Hussein was facing execution. However, she still has to face five years of imprisonment and the court has ordered her family to pay 337,000 Sudanese pounds or 18,700 dollars in, quote, blood money to the man's family both of which her lawyers are now planning to appeal against. Earlier this month, 15 male candidates were disqualified by Mexico's electoral tribunal for pretending to be transgender in order to bypass gender parity rules. While the rule for equal representation among men and women was adopted in only 2013, electoral rules in Oaxaca allow muxes, who are males identifying as a third gender, to occupy candidacies designated for women. The men were disqualified on the grounds that they were not known to be mucs before the candidate registration began. Two other such candidates, however, were found to be eligible as they had, quote, consistently identified as transgender, unquote. Not a single spot designated for men was filled by a transgender person. However, 19 places designated for women were filled by men who say they are transgender, said Annabel Lopez Sanchez, director of the Women's Citizenship Collective in Oaxaca in nevada dennis hoff a well-known pimp and brothel owner is contesting elections for the assembly as the republican candidate since then various women many of whom were prostituted at his brothels have accused him of sexual assault battery and rape this is not surprising in a state where prostitution has been legalized and might lead to a horrific situation for women's rights, where women lobbying against the legalization of prostitution, many of whom are survivors of the sex industry, will be forced to work with a pimp who is a major stakeholder in the industry. The Sussex Police is investigating bomb threats made against an event organized by a woman's place in Hastings, UK, to discuss proposed changes to the Gender Recognition Act of 2004. Currently, trans-identifying males need to have a medical diagnosis of gender dysphoria, spend at least two years living as the sex they wish to be identified as, and provide this information to a panel which decides if the legal change to their sex should be made. However, last year, a consultation was announced to demedicalize the process and make it possible for men to self-identify as women. A women's Place was launched as a campaign group against this consultation and its implications on women's rights. Nasreen Sotudeh, a prominent Iranian human rights lawyer who had defended women protesting against the compulsory hijab, was detained and given a sentence of five years of imprisonment on the 13th of June. Neither her nor her family is aware of what the sentence is for, but she has likely been arrested as a political prisoner for being publicly critical of the judiciary and the country's government. Earlier this month in Pakistan, A man accused of physically abusing Khadija Siddiqui was acquitted by the Lahore High Court after serving only one year out of the seven years of imprisonment he was sentenced to. The man had stabbed Khadija 23 times in public with several witnesses present while she was getting out of her car on May 3, 2016. The man had attacked her out of rage at her rejecting his advances. He was acquitted when a letter written to him by Siddiqui when she was 17 was found, which the court took as evidence of her, quote, pursuing him first, unquote. Women in Pakistan expressed their outrage with the hashtag Justice for Khadija and following this the court is re-examining the case even without a formal complaint having been filed. In Hartford, Connecticut, two trans-identifying men won the first and second position in the state championship for girls track and field further highlighting the effects of gender identity legislation on women and girls' rights. Following petitions protesting this, the Connecticut Interscholastic Athletic Conference said that their policy is directly in alignment with state law and for their policy to change, state law would also have to change. Thousands of women stood vigil outside the Congress building in Buenos Aires during the 20-hour-long marathon debate that led to the lower house of the Argentine Congress passing a bill to legalize abortion in the first 14 weeks of pregnancy. The bill was passed by a narrow margin of 4 votes and now needs to go through the Senate before it is signed by the President. Currently, abortion in Argentina is a crime in all cases with only two exceptions where the punishment is waived. One where the pregnant woman's life or health is in danger and the other where the pregnancy is the result of the rape of a mentally disabled woman. Even in these cases, however, doctors are often unwilling to proceed with an abortion for fear of prosecution. Earlier this month, an 18-year-old girl died of a snake bite while on menstrual exile or Chowpati in the Achham district of Nepal. Although an illegal practice since 2017, the punishment for which can be a 3-month jail sentence or a fine of 3,000 rupees, chowpadi continues to be a prevalent practice across the country. According to deep-rooted beliefs of religion and caste, women on their periods are deemed to be impure and are hence not allowed to stay inside their homes, eat their regular diets, or allowed access to public wells and taps. As per the social custom, Women who are unmarried have to stay for six days in the hut, married women having both a son and a daughter have to stay for five days, and women who have only daughters have to live for seven days in the hut. While living in the isolated huts, women are always at a risk of diarrhea, pneumonia, and respiratory diseases. They also face the danger of attack by wild animals or even abuse and rape by their fellow villagers. Even educated women are compelled to follow the tradition because of pressure from their families who believe that menstruating women are bad omens. Earlier this year, in January, another woman had died of suffocation while on exile and in the Acham district alone, nine women have died while on menstrual exile in the last 10 years. Earlier this month, the largest women's rally in South Korean history was held in Seoul in protest of spy camp pornography, a widespread method of filming the sexual abuse and harassment of women and the indifference of institutional mechanisms to this widespread abuse of women's rights. Between 2012 and 2017, out of the nearly 20,924 men who were suspects in cases of spy camp pornography, only 2.6% that is around 540 men were placed under detention. Since 2017, a total of 345 dead babies have been found in garbage dumps around the city of Karachi in Pakistan, 99% of which were female. A four-day-year-old girl was found with a throat slit. Another newborn baby was stoned to death after a cleric assumed it was an illegitimate child when it was left on the steps of a mosque. However, police say that there has been only one complaint of female infanticide in the last year. Activist Dahera Hassan says that the instances of female infanticide have been reducing. However, she said that this might be because child trafficking is on the increase. Two men gang-raped a 7-year-old girl in Madhya Pradesh, India on June 27th. The rapists had been known to harass women in their local park and the police had not taken any action against them since no complaints had been lodged. The men deliberately planned the attack knowing they could find her alone at the park and that she would not be able to fight back. They attempted to murder her by slitting her throat. This attack comes after the horrific Katwa case where an 8-year-old Muslim girl from a nomadic tribe was raped and murdered in Kashmir and protests were held in support of the accused. The death penalty that was introduced for rapists of children under 12 years of age, as suspected, has not amounted to any change in the safety of girls. The seven-year-old victim of the Madhya Pradesh attack has survived and is being treated by a panel of surgeons and psychiatrists.
3: Who are slick? You investors in hate, you sedams and you bushes, you've been and snakes, you billionaire bullies, you're a globalized curse. You put war on the masses and then you clean out the purse, and that's how it's done. War after war, you old feudal parasites, you just sacrifice the poor. You got the cutting edge weapons. But your scam's still the same as it's been since the Romans. Yo, it's the Patriot game. Yo, that's the war racket. It's the war racket. It's the war racket. It's the war racket. You twisters of language. You creeps of disguise. Yeah, disinformation. It's like worms in your eyes. You privileged bankers You gambler thieves You profit on war You think it's just less money in peace So that's how it's done Time after time Country after country And crime after crime You pretend it's religion Like there's no one to blame For the dead and impoverished In your little patriot game that's the, That's the war racket. That's the war racket. That's the war racket. That's the war racket. you got the world's greatest power, and you team up with thugs, make a fortune on weapons, destruction, and drugs, but your flags and boots and uniforms, they start to all smell the same.
2: Signs... That was Buffy Saint Marie with her song, The War Racket. Next up, we'll hear excerpts from an interview thistle-date with Cynthia Enloe. Cynthia Enloe is a feminist writer, theorist, and professor. She is best known for her work on gender and militarism and for her contributions to the field of feminist international relations. In 2015, the International Feminist Journal of Politics, in conjunction with the academic publisher Taylor & Francis, created the Cynthia Enloe Award in honour of Cynthia Enloe's pioneering feminist research into international politics and political economy. She was born in 1938 and is coming to her 80th time around the sun this July 16th. Her seminal work Bananas, Beaches and Bases exploded onto the scene of international relations in 1990 and was so popular it was republished in 2014. It reinforces the fact that masculinity has been used to create a patriarchal system, leading to male dominance over women. Militarization during wartime has reinforced a masculinized social order. The war in Vietnam which remasculinized America serves as an example of how gender and warfare became intertwined through specific gender roles during war. Thistle caught up with Cynthia on the phone and got to talk with her about her social theory to understand and organize against militarization and war. Here are portions of that interview. What
4: is the origin of war? And how has war changed over the last 500 years?
5: Well, I'm, I'm always dubious to say the truth of talking about origins. what Because it, it drives one into kind of some mythic history, and I think we don't know enough. But what I would say is that what we've all learned, there just there are hundreds of feminists around the world are trying to figure out what the causes of war are. And so it's the topic of conversation in many languages around the world and so when we talk about the causes of war, causes are much more diverse than perhaps one imagines but oftentimes very much in the mix. Maybe not the most important thing and sometimes it is the most important thing and that is ideas about masculinity. That is what is a proof that one is a, in quotes, a real man. And that crops up in lots of cultures. There's no culture where that doesn't show up. And that desire of so many men or so many boys are taught that they have to worry about their manliness is played on by militarized leaders, sometimes of governments, sometimes of other groups, to try and encourage men to think they can only prove their manliness in war. So yes, oil matters. Yes, land matters. Yes, racism absolutely matters in the mix of the causes of war, but so does false notions of manliness tied to the wielding of violence.
4: Can you talk more about masculinities and femininities and how those two realms are related to war?
5: Yes, and both are, because any government or any militarized group that wants to foster militarism and foment war needs a certain very narrow artificial notion of femininity as well as a very particular and artificial narrow notion of what it means to be manly. So the idea of manliness that gets used to foment organized violence against other people is a kind of manliness that has to prove itself through the wielding of violence, but it also, and this doesn't look as warlike, but it's very much attached to the making of war. A man, and oftentimes a boy, because we're talking about oftentimes recruiting boys, has to prove that he's a protector. And for femininity, In war, and in preparation for war, the proper, in quotes, the proper kind of narrow, militarized femininity is a femininity that is grateful for a certain kind of protection. And you see this in all kinds of countries, including, of course, the United States. And that is that women are in girls are taught to be grateful for a certain kind of manly protection that involves the wielding of violence or the organizing of violence, even if the manly man actually never holds a gun.
4: What's the difference between men who are peace activists and men who are signing up for the military? What does a demilitarized man look like?
5: Is that possible? Oh, yes, absolutely it's possible. And a lot of, it doesn't mean that every man who, and boy, who really works hard to demilitarize himself or to resist militarization in the first place, it doesn't mean that they are automatically not patriarchal or automatically not sexist. But it does mean that they've managed, oftentimes with the help of a lot of women who teach them, to detach their idea of being Manly from the wielding of violence. That's really crucial. That how do we do that?
4: How how does that happen?
5: So there are two movements around the world, and you find them in a lot of different cultures. The first is the movement of conscientious objectors. Now, they're called COs in English, conscientious objectors, and they, in most countries, the law, if there is required military service. The law is only for men and young men. And so for a young man to, at the age of 18, 19, 20, to say, no, I refuse to answer the government's law that requires me to sign up for military service, that young man has to really have thought. because You go to jail if you're a CO and there's a law requiring military service in your country. So you've got to have a lot of guts, and you've got to have really thought about why you are so determined not to take another life, not to wield violence. So the men around the world in countries like Korea, Israel, Turkey, and in the past in the United States and in Britain, there's no more requirement for military service, but there was. In France, in Italy, yeah, in those countries, those Young men, they're always young because the the law that requires men to serve in the government's militaries are 17, 18, 19, and 20-year-olds usually. And they've had to think really hard about declaring themselves unwilling to take a life and therefore unwilling to be recruited into the government's military. So, yes, it is possible to demilitarize a man's or boy's notion of manliness. But it's very tough and it's very risky. So how
4: long has this been going on, this situation of nations that are armed to the teeth? Because warfare hasn't always been like this, where men who are strangers to one another at 18, 19, 20 years old all of a sudden are in a battalion together and they're bonding and they're getting to know each other. I mean this seems like a very modern development, the way it, war is. no, it's
5: it unfortunately, this is the bad news. Uh, there are two things, I guess, thistle. One is that it's not true that every society has always been warlike. So that's myth number one to be exploded. To be a people, to be a society does not automatically mean that you're warlike. That's number one. But number two is that wars between people, as you say, who are strangers, wars, in fact, can be documented for centuries before what we would think of as modern warfare. And they were real slaughters. And they were led by elite men who organized non-elite men to fight their interest so that's been going on for a long time I mean we wouldn't have Shakespeare if there hadn't been a war story to tell right he's in the 1600s but it's also true that wars have become much more deadly because of the efforts put into technology of, of death really so that's what's really changed, is that the, the weaponry is really different than when you were fighting with spears. I mean, the mm-hmm. creation of the bow and arrow was, was a terrible creation. That killed a lot more people than before the bow and arrow was created. And then you have rifles, and of course now you have modern warf, uh, warfare from the air. And that really dates from, well, it starts in World War I, but the war that is most memorable... For leaping forward, the deadliness of airborne uh, war is the Spanish Civil War in the 1930s in Spain.
4: Yeah, and then of course the dropping of the bomb on Japan, the atomic bomb. Yeah, Yeah, right. That's and that's Um, 1945
5: uh, in in the U.S. drops on first on Hiroshima and second on Nagasaki. Well, there's such a strong peace movement in Japan. Yeah, but not all Japanese men are peace, So one has to be really careful here. I, I can really, I guess I've worked with so many people in so many countries, and everybody's taught me, and I'm just a constant learner, and that is I really avoid sweeping statements about any people or any country. Mm-hmm.
4: Right. And I think the same can be said about feminists. You know, like there's a lot of disagreement amongst feminists about how things are, but yet there are ways of thinking, methodologies, analyses, philosophies that do and can bind us together, you know. So within that, there can, and without making sweeping generalizations.
5: Yeah. You and can, feminists work very hard in, in transnational peace movements to create those bonds and to develop those So it is true that a lot of women have been persuaded for the sake of anti-colonialism, anti-dictatorship movements to join military insurgencies. And so women in Nicaragua, women in Ethiopia or in Eritrea, women in the Philippines, women in China, women in Algeria have joined Groups that are armed, militarized groups, because they thought supporting those armed groups would enhance everybody's liberty by overthrowing the colonial masters. Mm-hmm. So, and,
4: and what do you what do you think of those efforts? Do you think that that's an well? Effective I, I think they're very. I,
5: yeah, I think, and you have to watch them over time. I mean, for instance, Nicaraguan women are amongst the most interesting to watch and learn from. A lot of Nicaraguan women joined what was called the Sandinista movement in the 1970s and fought side by side with men wielding arms against the highly militarized Somoza dictatorship that was backed by the United States. And those women who fought with the Sandinistas, that is they fought in a militarized armed group, fought for what they thought was liberation. And liberation from a, a really oppressive armed regime, the Somoza dictatorship. Now you watch the, and listen to those Nicaraguan women who were themselves Sandinistas after the war, and watch them seeing what's happening after Somoza's been overthrown and the new re, new government comes in, and you hear really. Important, deep, difficult debates amongst Nicaraguan women over whether what they fought for is what they actually were experiencing, and whether, in fact, their participation in the armed insurgency, they would never say they want Somoza back, but was working through an armed group, really the path towards women's sustainable liberation and the rolling back of patriarchal norms and patriarchal ways of organizing society. And you hear women really debating with each other about whether that's true. And that's also true in, in other countries where women were really crucial to the success of armed insurgencies. But that doesn't mean that they stopped thinking about what are the costs in the long run of having mm-hmm. supported a male-led armed insurgency.
4: Exactly. You know, I went to Nicaragua in 1988 on a college study abroad
5: program. Oh, and, great.
4: And one of the things that really struck me was that there was a girly-girl contest being featured in a local newsletter that I picked up, um, you know, like a beauty contest of these uh, Sandinista women parading around, and I, I said something about it. I was like, what is this, you know? And the hosts were like, well, that's what they want. That's what they want to do, and so then that's why it's happening. And, and, I, and I was really confused by that because, for me, when you're talking about liberation from a capitalistic dictatorship supported by the United States, highly militarized, why isn't women's liberation within that a goal and explicitly a goal? I mean, if they're militarizing for a male-led movement, I mean, and, and women's liberation is not explicitly
5: expressed, what is it that they're doing? You know what I mean? Yes, and this is, I, I mean, I think this is why things are messy and things are complex, and you're a woman who's a poor farmer and you've been oppressed by the Samosa armed police and driven off your land, and maybe your compañero has been murdered or your son has been forcibly recruited into the government's military, and you join the armed insurgency, there is oftentimes not space to really think through what, are the ethics of this movement around uh, gender relationships? There's more talk about it than we imagine. There's a lot of talk about marriage and sexuality in the midst of insurgencies, much more than we imagine. But it really doesn't give you a chance to kind of hammer out, if you will, a full and deep and nuanced gender agenda. So mm-hmm. I think it oftentimes that's why you really have to listen carefully over time. And that's why it's really interesting that you were in Nicaragua in 1988, and that's now several years after the Sandinistas have won and overthrown the Somoza dictatorship. And you can hear the debate still going on. You can hear some women still wanting classic patriarchal notions of beauty to be confirmed, it doesn't stop. Yeah. The debate doesn't stop. The complexities don't go away. It's really tough.
4: And war situations are desperate, and so people are not acting from a calm place where they're, you know, debating this or that and then taking their time and moving forward. There's Absolutely a lot of- not.
5: Right. You There's are you are on the run, and you are trying to protect each other, and that doesn't allow for a lot of coherent, ongoing, organized thought and planning. Mm-hmm. Um, so I listen really carefully to Erit, uh, very particular women, Eritrean women who've gone through an insurgency and then a rollback of what they thought were gains for women after the insurgency. Vietnamese feminists are very interesting to listen to, Nicaraguan feminists, El Salvadoran feminists, so you have to listen to really, uh, definitely Algerian feminists, you have to listen really carefully and learn from their debates. I mean, the worst thing that any, especially an American or a Northern European or a Canadian can do is imagine that we know how to work this out and oh, why couldn't they have seen it ahead of time? That that kind of arrogance is exactly the kind of arrogance, even if it's supposedly feminist. You know. So then how do yeah. we build How do we build a united women's
4: liberation movement that includes and is for all women, based on a, our knowledge you do a that lot men of are, you know, oppressing us?
5: And you do all a lot of us. listening. You do, Cicel, you do more listening and you know how much energy it takes to listen, right? And you don't listen as if you're, and you wouldn't do this anyway, but none of us in this radio community, you don't listen in a kind of condescending patience. You listen because you, you realize you don't know. And that's how you build a movement. And I've right seen on. it time and again. And there's a lot of transnational organizing amongst women. I mean, there's, so a, there's a lot of a How much?
4: How much of movement building is intentional and coming from thought and analysis, and how much of it is building momentum and the feeling that you have on the street and like doing something because you have to? It's
5: probably a combination, don't you think? Mm -hmm. I mean, that is, it's not all just spontaneous. You know, anytime you go to a street demonstration, you've thought about why you're going, right? And so... The mix of spontaneity and um, genuine emotion um, together with thought and working out a strategy for the longer term, those things are not opposites. They happen mm-hmm. almost simultaneously. Right on. And but most of the achievements that have been gained around reproductive rights, around anti violence against women, against for women's economic opportunities, which are crucial, they've happened because women have come together despite differences in histories and experiences and language and really tried to hone the things that they do share. And a lot of it, it doesn't happen on the street. It doesn't happen in public places. If you watch a lot of women who worked against military rule in Egypt, for instance, so we saw them in Tahir Square, and we saw that on television. It was very dramatic. But the amount of organizing that Egyptian women had been doing for at least 10, 12, 15 years before we started paying attention to them because they gathered in Tahir Square in Cairo was really important for that being possible.
4: When I went to graduate school and I read Joni Seeger's book Earth follies and I learned that the environmental movement and the peace movement and a lot of social justice organizing and community organizing neighborhood organizing is led by women. Is that true that women really are like the the ones that are leading our social justice movements when they do swell up and there's that combination of spontaneity and strategy? And if that is true, what what is keeping us from being successful and sustaining our peace and justice movements, our anti racist movements, and all the environmental movement, all the movements that you know I learned a long time ago that women that women are leading?
5: Well, I think one of the
4: things that happens
5: in a lot of movements is that when they are not formally organized. And when they are very much about local participation, you're right. Women are in the lead, and certainly Joni Seeger has shown this in countless um, environmental movement and environmental justice, and this is also true in peace movements. When they're local, when they don't have any funding, when they Mm -hmm. are working, if you will, in the most local context, When they get more organized, formally organized, and when they get recognized by the media and or by people in policy offices, and then somebody wants to either support them officially or bargain with them in some formal way, then is usually, this isn't automatic, but that is usually the point at which men in the organizations Begin to be much more visible as the leaders and as the people that the media and officialdom recognize yeah. as the people to bargain with. And that's right. oftentimes true in peace movements as well.
0: of me. saw the bombers riding shotgun in the sky and they would turn
6: Woodstock by Joni Mitchell, an anti-war anthem reflecting on the swelling grassroots peace movement and culture in response to the U.S.-led war in Vietnam during the 1960s. When thinking about women to interview for this anti-war podcast, Cindy Sheehan was at the top of our list. Ms. Sheehan is an American anti-war activist whose son, U.S. Army Specialist Casey Sheehan, was killed during the Iraq War. She attracted national and international media attention in August 2005 for her extended anti-war protests at a makeshift camp outside former President George W. Bush's Texas ranch, a stand that drew both passionate support and criticism. Her memoir, Peace Mom, A Mother's Journey Through Heartache to Activism, was published in 2006. Currently, she is organizing a women's march on the Pentagon October 20th and 21st, 2018, in Washington, D.C.,
4: I know you're a longtime anti-war activist. What does this 4th of July season mean to you regarding U.S. attitudes towards war?
7: Well, it sure has changed since uh, my son was killed in Iraq in 2004. We never, I'm thinking, you know, when we were younger and before before 9-11 happened, it was a day for family and picnics and gatherings and, you know, just like a community day. that was, you know, we were recognizing that... It was the U.S. Independence Day, but there wasn't like this gross display of, disingenuous displays of, of gross patriotism like they are now. And it's, it's we're supposed to be, we are supposed to be celebrating our independence from an empire, the British Empire when the U.S. has grown in to be the most brutal empire in human history. Now, of course, there's been brutal empires, but now the U.S. has a tech Technology And the willingness to use it to make the world even a uh, worse place. So now we are celebrating that. We're celebrating the fact that the U.S. has grown into this brutal empire. So to me, the 4th of July... Is basically a day where I think we have to highlight these issues, not where we're going to just pretend like it doesn't happen. But we have to be talking about how the U.S. has. We have never started out good, but it, especially since nine eleven, it's really transformed into something that's particularly vicious and and. Instead of bringing freedom and democracy to the world, we're just bringing pain and heartache and environmental destruction and just everything, everything bad, as as empires do.
4: Yeah, and can you talk a little bit about how women are particularly impacted by U.S.
7: empire and wars? We started the women's march on the Pentagon, I think, which we're going to talk about later, because the other women's march, the the one that uh, is against Trump, will not address war as a women's issue, and we feel that. Women are the most impacted, detrimentally affected by war. Women, of course, are killed. Their families are killed. They're displaced. They have to deal with deprivations of occupation, like lack of medicine, lack of education, lack of secure housing, clean water, clean air. And so communities are communities are affected, and women, of course, Are also raped and sexually brutalized, not just occupied women, but women who are in service in the military are probably about 90%, 90% statistically going to be affected by sexual assault, sexual harassment, or rape when they are in service by their fellow troops or their superiors. So war affects the economy, war affects the environment, war affects the community, and women are the ones who who suffer the most for this.
4: Mm -hmm. And can you talk about the upcoming Women's March on the Pentagon event that you're organizing? What do you hope to accomplish with this march? Well,
7: Well, we are having a march on October 21st, and we are going to march to the Pentagon and have a rally, and then we're hoping... To create an event called Occupy the Pentagon until Veterans Day. So that's from October 21st till November 11th. And what we hope to accomplish is creating a non-partisan movement against the bipartisan war machine. We just see that over the years, especially my observations over the years since my son was killed in Iraq in 2004, are my observations are that Opposition to wars is definitely partisan. We saw when Barack Obama was president, he took about three hot wars from George Bush and expanded them to seven and greatly expanded the use of drone bombing, the use of humanitarian interventions. He expanded AFRICOM, and is that not ironic? The first black president in the United States uh, making great inroads, imperial inroads, into the continent of Africa, but there was little opposition, so we're like, so I still, I still was opposing everything Barack Obama did, and so uh war is definitely, or bipartisan issue, definitely in the U.S. government, it, it, when it comes to the issue of war and peace, the Democrats and Republicans are equal, if not the Democrats are worse, because when they do, when they invade, when they bomb, when they make imperial incursions into other countries or continents, there is no opposition from the grassroots. So we really are hoping to create a a very principled movement against imperialism, not just when a Republican is in office. And so we're also uh, hoping that women who are the most affected by war will become the leaders of this movement. Not that we're exclusively... Women, we do invite you know men and our allies to um, join us, but to recognize that women are setting the agenda and the strategy, and we're the ones who are, are setting the table. No, we're not just setting the table. We're building it and claiming it and saying that it's got to be women like us, not women like Hillary Clinton, not women like Condoleezza Rice or Mark Thatcher or you know any of the other women who are devotees of patriarchy and imperialism. It's women like us who will actually change the world and who will actually put a stop to this because we care not just about who's, if there's a Republican as the president We don't care just about um, wedge issues here in the United States. We are in solidarity with all the women around the world who are suffering from U.S. imperialism. And when we get together, we truly feel, know that we will bring an end to um, U.S. imperialism.
4: Yeah, and may we all be united and acting in solidarity because that's what brings power to our movement. And uh so I appreciate so much the organizing efforts that you and other women are making for this march on the Pentagon. Is there anything else you'd like to say to our WLRN listeners who are largely radical feminists and lesbians? Uh-huh. Well, first thing
7: is that you can go to get more information about the Women's March on the Pentagon at www.marchonpentagon.com, and I also have podcasts in the show hands box. And that's, you can just Google Cindy Hands Up box I have 10 years of wonderful archive, archive shows, and they're all principally about, you know, U.S. foreign policy, uh, you know, critique uh, of that, but also, um, you know, very many issues that affect the, the, the planet, really, and from a, a really radical left perspective, not a political perspective. So that's what people can do. They can look at Cindy Sheehan's Soapbox and the Women's March on the Pentagon. Volunteer, we have, on the Women's March on the Pentagon, we have ways that people can sign up for ride share boards, housing share boards, and more information about, for example, who's endorsing us, who's on our, who's on our boards, um, you know, volunteer to help. You can volunteer to help from anywhere. And if you can't make it to Washington, D.C., you can organize something in your own community um, in solidarity with us on that day. And just know that October 1st is just a march and what we're doing before and after we hope we'll be building this movement.
4: Absolutely. Thank you so much, Cindy Sheehan. The other interviewee for this program happens to also be named cindy she's cynthia and Mm -hmm. and her birthday is on july 16th and yours is on july 10th so i just thought that was a funny coincidence i Um, know huh
7: (laughs) i have a shirt i have a shirt on right now that says july girls are sunshine mixed with a little hurricane
1: you are listening to wlrn Brought to you by the totally excellent radical feminists at Women's Women's. Liberation Liberation. Radio Radio. News.
6: a male invention. As feminists, we should ask ourselves why men can't and won't abandon the practice. We should also be the most steadfast anti-war, pro-peace activists in society, rejecting not only whatever military occupation our government and military are currently involved in, but our pro-war culture. Men go to war because they enjoy it. They always have. It doesn't matter what race, ethnicity, religion, time period, or political persuasion you consider. Men across all categories are long-time warmongers, and if you ask me, it's because violence is in male nature. War is simply the outlet for their necrophilia, their desire to destroy. We can trace war back thousands of years in every region of the world, and while weapons have changed, the fundamental details of war have not. Men kill each other, along with women and children, for money and land and power itself. They take their impulse to dominate, mark territory, rape, torture, and kill to an international scale. They create a narrative, they tell themselves, about war in which murder, death, and destruction are honorable, glorious, admirable, and exciting. They've been framing war in positive terms since Homer first composed the Iliad, since before the Sumerians invented writing, since human beings lived in caves and only had rocks to kill each other with. To this day, we toss around the word heroic to describe men who go to war. We hold them up as people to be admired, respected, even idolized. Let's get real about what war is. War is mass murder. War is a bunch of men getting together in groups to kill each other until one side gives up. War destroys entire cities and countries. It dooms generations of people to sickness, disability, and misery. It steals years of people's lives, even if they survive the action. War leads to women and children being raped and enslaved. War subjects people to torture and imprisonment. War destroys nature and kills animals. War is a nasty, traumatic, gruesome, horrifying experience, whether you're talking about it in the year 3000 BCE, or 1540 AD, or 2018. The entire military industrial complex in the present-day US is a malignant operation from top to bottom, One big knot of greed, violence, corruption, and terror. What is heroic about killing other people to serve the greed, racism, religious fanaticism, and animalistic territorialism of powerful men? What is heroic about rape? What is heroic about torture? What is heroic about destroying people's homes and bodies and psychologically damaging them beyond repair? And what is it all for? Who benefits from war? How do they benefit? Why is it a crime to murder someone without government approval, but legal and heroic to murder people with government approval? Radical feminism is and must be an anti-war, pro-peace movement. No matter what country you live in, whether your people are the attacked or the attackers, The moral ramifications of war involve you. If we have not lived through military occupation and violence ourselves, we are descended from women who did, or we live in countries who force women and girls elsewhere to suffer through it. War touches every woman and girl on earth, directly and indirectly. In the United States, our politicians tell us we don't have the money to give everyone free health care, and free public college education, and housing and food and support for the sick, disabled, and otherwise unemployable. But we have a trillion dollars to give to the military for bombs and guns and warplanes and nuclear weapons and tanks. We have the money to destroy other countries and other people's lives, but we don't have the money to improve our own. That's what these men tell us. Most of our tax dollars go to the military budget. We are all a part of the war machine, whether we like it or not. Your tax dollars pay for the pointless bombing of innocent civilians in their homelands. Your tax dollars pay for males in the military to rape women and children overseas and get away with it, not to mention the rapes they commit against their female comrades. If that doesn't make you sick, it should. There hasn't been a real anti-war movement in the U.S. to speak of since the 1970s. Radical feminism emerged during that decade in part because of the leftist anti-war movement, spearheaded by women. In just 40 years or less, women on the left side of the political spectrum went from marching in the streets against war to making excuses for why it's acceptable when Democrats are in charge of it. If we care about all women and girls around the world, if we want every single woman and girl alive to be safe and free and healthy, we must say no to the war machine until it's dead, rejecting our pro-war culture that glorifies male violence and refusing to support politicians who consider war an acceptable, inevitable part of life. War is a tool of male power. In a world supportive of female well-being, it does not exist.
0: That concludes WLRN's 27th edition podcast on women in the anti-war movement for this Thursday, July 5th, 2018. Thanks to Cindy Sheehan and Cynthia Enloe for granting us interviews, and to Segment Shial for her powerful commentary. If you like what you hear, please consider donating to our grassroots feminist media collective by clicking on the donate button on our WordPress site. While there, take a look at our merch page and consider a large enough donation to get a fabulous feminist reward sent to you in the mail. Thanks for staying tuned to Feminist Community Radio. This is Natasha, signing off for now. And
4: I am Thistle Patterson. WLRN is a volunteer-run organization that trains women to be the media and take charge of the narrative. If you're interested in joining our team, go to our WordPress site and click on the Volunteer for WLRN tab for instructions on how to apply. We are always looking for new members to add to our team and especially would like to recruit a fabulous feminist to run our YouTube channel. Get in touch with us for more information about volunteer opportunities at wlrnewscontact
1: at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. This is Jenna DiCuardo signing off for now. Stay tuned for our August 2nd release focusing on women, climate change, and the environment. WLRN always releases our handcrafted feminist news programs the first Thursday of every month. Please contact us with your show ideas at wlrnewscontact
6: at gmail.com.
2: Thanks for tuning in to our Women in Anti-War Activism podcast. This is Maya signing off for now.
6: And I'm Sekhmet Sheowl. Until next time, feminist comrades, keep fighting the good fight.
0: But how will we find our way out of this? What is the antidote for the patriarchal kiss? How will we find what needs to be shown? And then after that... Where is home, tell me, where is my home, cause gender.